God, I thank you so much for the stage you've given us. Thank you for the uh, privilege you have of coming together as your people. And uh, Lord, as we discuss uh, the fear of the Lord, I ask that you would help us to gain a better under- understanding of it and that you would uh, help us to uh, know you more. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we started the series last week, The Fear of the Lord. So I just want to review. Um, some of y'all weren't here, so we'll review just real quickly. But we defined what it means to fear the Lord, and we talked about that for quite a while. Um, but let me just boil it down to this. Simply put, uh, to fear God is to respond, respond to Him in awe, trust, obedience, and worship. And we, this is what we looked at. Of course, it wasn't that quick uh, last week, but that's just kind of a basic, simple uh, answer for what, defining what the fear of the Lord is. We looked at the fact that God is far beyond our limited comprehension and that the magnitude of God is indescribable. He's so much bigger than we can ever imagine. He's so much, he's so much greater than we could ever describe. And so uh, because of that, he is to be feared. And so this demands our awe, our trust, our obedience and worship of him. And again, it's on his terms. And Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so this worship of God that Jesus is speaking of here is the whole person. It's with the heart. It's from the heart, but it has to be based on the truth of God's word. So if you remember the story in John chapter 4... He's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And so the Samaritans, they understood the heart part of it, but they didn't have the truth. The Jews, of course, knew the truth, but their heart wasn't in it. And so what Jesus is saying is that it's both of those. It's from the heart based on, the, on God's word and the truth of God's word. It involves the whole person. Last week, we also saw that Jesus always seeks to do what God the Father wants him to do, and he submitted to that will, the will of God, in obedience. We have to remember that Jesus and God is, is uh, one or the other greater than the other? No. They're both equally God, but Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. And again, we can't understand how this all works We can't explain the Trinity. We can't explain God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, how they are one God and three different persons all at the same time. And how that works, I have no idea. Nobody can, we can't explain that. We can't comprehend that. We cannot comprehend the magnitude of God. We looked in Isaiah 11 last week. We saw that the Messiah which we know now uh, was Jesus, that he would delight in the fear of the Lord and that those who fear the Lord uh, seek God and they seek his will. And as we seek the Lord and submit to in obedience, as we continue to seek him and when he, when, whenever we read his word, whenever he speaks to us, and by the way, when I say speak to us, I'm not talking about audibly since we're not talking, we're not going, that's not what we're talking about here, but God speaks to us through his word. Whenever we continue to respond in obedience, the delight will follow. The delight will follow. Because this is where fulfillment in life as a Christian is found in obedience to God the Father. So the statement we ended with last week, 
As the fear of God grows when we marinate, marinate it in the knowledge of God's holiness, God's justice, and God's righteousness, the unbeliever fears God like a slave fears his master. Not so with a Christian. He or she saturates themselves in conviction that God is their father. He is infinitely loving, gracious, and merciful. So that is what we looked at very briefly uh, last week. A little, a little review there. So tonight we're going to move on. And we're going to look at four reasons to fear God. And so if you didn't grab a handout, we have some back there if you'd like one. You don't have to have one, but they're back there if you'd like it. Um, but we're going to look at four reasons to fear God. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. Most of our time is going to be spent on the first one. Um, I've got a lot of the verses typed up already so that you won't have to look them all up, but some of them uh, you will. But the first reason to fear God is that God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely holy. We've already talked about how we can't describe the greatness and the magnitude of God, which because of that in itself, we are to fear him. And so he is infinitely holy. I'm going to read Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. But remember, and know this, the theme of the book, the theme of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of God. And so Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You should not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of, uh, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So maybe you're familiar with that phrase. You've read that before. You've heard that taught before. But this is kind of uh, Peter's. You'll see here in a second. Peter quotes this. But God here is teaching his people that they are to be distinct from the surrounding pagan nations. Even in the way that they ate, the dietary laws and things like that that he gave them, uh, they were to be distinct. They were to be different. He's teaching them that they must learn to live his way. Uh, through, and, and so uh, God is teaching them uh, the reality of living this way is, is to do, be obedient in everything. Even the little mundane things. It's that God wants our obedience. And he wanted his people to be different. He wants us to be different. And so he says, be holy, for I am holy. And so we are to be distinctly different. The point of all this in Leviticus is that we are to be different and separate because God is utterly distinct and different from fallen humanity. There is no comparison to God. He has no rival. He is completely and totally other, completely and totally different, set apart. God desired that they be separate from sin in their hearts. And because the Lord is their God, they are to be utterly distinct. And this is the point he's making in Leviticus when God gives this command is you are to look different than the nations around you. You are to be an, an example. You are to be a witness. You are to be a blessing to the nations that surround you. And so he's teaching his people this. Peter quotes this verse in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, which we just read in Levit Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we see this. This is not just an Old Testament thing. This is not just an Old Testament law. Peter is quoting this from 
the law is that they, that the people of God are to be holy because God is holy. This is what he desires, that we be holy, that we be different, that we be distinct, is that we, and, you know, to apply that to our day, what do you, how do you look in comparison to the world? When I say look as far as how do you live, how, what decisions do you make, how do you spend your time, how do you spend your money, how do you, uh, what, is, what is the goal, what are the goals of your life? Do you, are they different than the world's? And we're to be distinct, we're to be different, we're to be holy because God is holy. It is impossible for God's children to be sinless. However, they can still become more and more separated from sin and increasingly like their heavenly father who is holy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. So as Christians, we are to be different than the world around us. He says, uh, come out from among them. Be different. Now, we're going to be around non-believers. Most of the world doesn't know Christ. Most of the people you work with don't know Christ. Most of the people that live in your neighborhood don't know Christ. I mean, it's honest truth. So you're going to be around people. You're going to work with people. You're going to be, uh, you're going to have that, in, you're going to have that chance to be an influence on them. So we can't take ourselves out of the world. You're going to be around it, but you are to be an influencer. You are to be a witness. You are to be an example. You're to be, you're not going to, we don't talk like them. We don't do the same things they do. We are to be distinct. We're to be different so that they can notice the difference in your life. And that hopefully, eventually they'll, they'll, they'll ask or a conversation will come up and you say, why, why are you different? Say, because, because I love God, because God saved me. You know, I used to say, you know, probably not a great answer to say, why don't you do that? Because I'm a Christian. They don't do that. <laughs> okay. But what does that mean? Say, I've been changed. I have a relationship with God. I love God. He saved me. He forgave me my sin. He's given me new life. That is why. And I would not want to do anything that would dishonor him. We are to look different. We are to be holy because God is holy. So I want to take some time to look at some examples of this. Talking about the, the, how big God is and the holiness of God. And in scripture, we have many instances of man's response when they truly encounter the living God. And so the first one is Moses. So I don't have these in your handout. So uh, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. And this is Moses. This is Moses' kind of first encounter uh, with the living God. And so Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of, of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not being consumed. Would that catch your attention? <laughs> Something weird is going on here. So this, bur- this bush is on fire, but it's not burning, if that makes sense. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here I am. So now the bush is speaking to him. So you got a bush. It's on, it's on fire, but it's not burning. And then a voice comes from it. And what's funny is Moses answers it. He says, here I am. So he's talking to a bush. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take, off your sand, take the sandals off your feet and play for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He had this encounter with God. What made this desert ground holy? We, have, we live in a desert, right? What made it holy? Well, it was the presence of God. He says, take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. It is that God's presence is what made this ground holy. And so Moses had this encounter with God. Uh, Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> it says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, <clears throat> excuse me, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. <clears throat> is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Your version may say, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So notice here Isaiah's response. What was his first response? He says, Woe is me. So imagine what he, uh, just think about what he saw. He saw the throne room of God and the doorpost shook and it was filled with smoke and the train of his robe filled the temple. You have these creatures, these seraphim, and they call one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, God has a lot of attributes, does he not? What is the attribute that they are really uh, that you continually see in Scripture is the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. The foundations shake at the voice of Him, and it shake uh, at the voice of Him who called. Houses filled with smoke. His response is, "Woe is me." All of a sudden, he felt really small. All of a sudden, he felt a sense of his sin. All of a sudden, he felt a sense of his inadequacy and, and how sinful that he was. He says, my eyes have seen the king. 
My life is changed. I'm different. So we see his, his initial response is, woe is me in the presence of God's holiness. But also, how does he respond? In obedience. Is that when God, when God says, he calls him, he says, here am I, send me. So he said, woe is me, I'm, I'm small, I'm dealing with the God of the universe, and uh, I've seen him, and now he's calling me, and I, and I will respond in obedience to him. So this sense of, overwhelming sense of his sinfulness, and his, his falling short, and then also, because of that, his obedience to God. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. And if you read before this, Ezekiel is describing this whole scene of these creatures with with, uh, four different, their faces look like four different things. I mean, you can go and read that later. Um, And he continues that in chapters 2 and chapter 3. But we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Ezekiel 1, verses 26 through 28. Says and above the expanse, over their heads, there was like the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance, or with a human appearance. And upward from that had the appearance of his waist. I saw were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from that he had the appearance of the waist. I saw the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the rain of the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness and the glo- of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of the one speaking. What was Ezekiel's response to this uh, encounter with God, to the holiness and the the greatness of God? Ezekiel's response was, I fell on my face. Fell on his face in fear and worship. Fear overtook him and he fell on his face. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, of course, Peter, the one always talking, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, (laughs) one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I like verse 5, like Peter's still speaking. Verse 5 says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw the glorified Christ, and they were terrified. 
But what did Jesus say to him? He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And he, and he, uh, and then of course he, he tells him, don't say anything about this. <laughs> so these are like his inner circle. Don't say anything about this until I'm resurrected. Of course, they still didn't understand all this stuff, but they saw the glorified Jesus in this situation. Go to second Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 1 through 10. Paul here says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, by the way, he's talking about himself, uh, was caught up to the, the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though I wish, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I plead with the Lord about this, that it should, uh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul, he begins to talk about, apparently, he says, in the body or out of the body? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how this all happened. But he, was, uh, he had this, this uh, encounter with God. But he wasn't at liberty to speak about what he saw. And so Paul knew himself, and he knew that because he was, God chose to do this to him, that he would tend to become conceited. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming too proud, too prideful. This is why he had the thorn in the flesh, and Paul understood that. But he, he saw things, and he felt, you could almost, he felt uncomfortable even bringing it up. You can kind of tell. Is that what he saw... He, he never, did never did talk about, it's never recorded in the scripture. We don't know what he saw, but he saw, he says, the word he uses, he saw paradise. And so he saw heaven, he had a glimpse, but he didn't come back just talking about it. It's, he, he was, he's not going to speak about it. So go to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And this is the vision of, of course, this is the resurrected Christ. So keep that in mind. Now, Revelation of chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that 
are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, to, Smyr- to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to, see a, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white, white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. What is John's response when he sees this? He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And what did Jesus do? He says he puts his hand on him. He says, fear not. Fear not. So there's this holy terror in the presence of God. But we have the, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to fear in that sense. Uh, Revelation chapter 4. We're almost done with these. Verses 1 through 11. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were in seven, the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was... Uh, there was, as, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a, like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature uh, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. John saw this as well. The four living creatures never cease crying out, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It says they never cease doing this. If they never cease doing this, this is going on right now as we speak in heaven. Is the praising, the holiness, and the majesty of God. It says they never cease. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So that was, there are several examples from scripture where we see, we see these things. These examples of these people who had encounters with God. And what we can glean from this is that we serve an infinitely holy and awesome God. Therefore, he is to be feared. He is to be feared. He is God Almighty. What is man's response in the presence of God in these passages that we just read is, of course, fear. Uh, the disciples, as they were terrified, they had a sense of unworthiness, a sense of inadequacy. They get a sense of their own sinfulness. And then, of course, awe, reverence, worship, and obedience. This is what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that we respond to God in that way. Now compare this with the modern stories of people claiming that they've died and gone to heaven. Those, those stories like heaven is for real, things like that, and they pull at your heartstrings. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. I mean, I'm sorry, they made a great, it may make a great movie. It may, it may mean, uh, it may make you feel good, but it's not biblical. Look at the responses of the people when they had this encounter with God. People say, oh, I went to heaven, and I saw Jesus, and me and Grandpa fished by the lake, and it was... That's not what Scripture says. That does not, as not what Scripture says about God. This is not how these people responded. So we need to be careful about these things. They don't measure up to the word of, God's, uh, word of God as he describes his awesomeness and his holiness and how big he is and how majestic he is to say, to be ho-hum about it, saying, yeah, I saw Jesus and I saw Grandpa. And we were just kind of walking around by the lake. And, of course, they're not dead. <laughs> the person is still alive. Um, so we got to be careful about these things because when these people these that, that wrote scripture when they saw the living god they feared they feared him and so don't be deceived our god is great and glorious and is to be feared and to be taken seriously to be taken seriously and so that is the first response the first response to uh a reason, I should say, to fear is God is infinitely holy. These, second, these next ones we won't look at quite as long. We'll just read a couple of verses. But the second reason is that God commands us to fear him. God commands us to. Proverbs 24, 21 says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join those who do otherwise. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 24 says, Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach to you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. 
that you may fear the Lord your God and your son, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. So this has like a generational thing is that teaching your children to fear the Lord and then hopefully teaching your children's children to fear the Lord has this generational idea behind it. It says, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. It says, this is the commandment. Let me just read it again. The statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And then verse, this is verse 24, this last part. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for your, our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. We are commanded to fear the Lord. We are commanded to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. It says, And now, Israel, what, is the, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, uh, to serve the Lord, with, uh, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding, commanding you today for your good. So he says, this is what God requires of you, to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him. Do you love God? To serve him? Are you serving him? Do you fear God? He says, this is what the Lord required of us, requires of us, I should say. And Deuteronomy thirteen four says, you shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. It says you are to walk with him, to fear him, to love him, to serve him. This is what we are called to do. So God commands us to fear him. The third reason, I told you we'll move through these, pretty, these next couple pretty quick. The next reason that we are to fear the Lord is that there are consequences for disobedience. There's consequences. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 say, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, whom he, whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And so we need to remember that when we are under the discipline of the Lord, it's for our good. It's for our good. And this is what they're teaching here. This is what the Bible's teaching. Is that there's an end goal. It's not just to punish you. It's that you would, that you would grow. So uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you? As sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, that you have to endure. 
uh, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us uh, for a short time and seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, of, for the moment all discipline seems painful, Rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is that when we sin, there are consequences to our sin. Yet God loves us too much to allow us to continue in sin, so He disciplines us. And He has a goal in His discipline, just as you as parents have with your kids, is that there's a goal in mind, hopefully. Hopefully, there's a goal. Not that we do it perfectly, but we, we have a goal for our kids. And so we set boundaries and we set uh, and we have a different uh, discipline for different things that they, they may do. And, you know, of course, age appropriate. Um, of course, some things are, they do is worse than others. I mean, but we have these boundaries, but there's a goal. And that goal is that they would grow. That goal is that it, they'd be restored. That goal is that they would be trained. And this is what... Hebrews is saying, it says, for the moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is for our training, is for our growth. It's that we become more like Christ. And so we, that is, this is one of the reasons to fear the Lord, is that there are consequences for our disobedience. But we need to remember that when the Lord disciplines us, it's because he loves us. Just as a loving parent disciplines their children, he is our loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us when we sin. And finally, the last reason, the last reason to fear the Lord is a day of judgment hastens. A day of judgment hastens. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we pursue, uh, we persuade others. But we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to you also in your in your conscience to your conscience also. So it says, every one of us, we must all appear. So we will stand face to face one day with the righteous judge. Now, if you know Christ, you will never be judged guilty for your sin. Romans 8, 8, 1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So your sin has been cleansed. Your sin has been cleansed. You'll never be judged guilty for the sins that you have committed. But we will be rewarded and judged on our motives, the things that we did for the Lord. And we see this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But we will all stand before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. It says, according to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The warning here is, says, take heed how you build. It says, Jesus Christ is the foundation. If you know Christ, you are saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you are his child, and one day you'll spend eternity with him. He is the foundation. But it says, take heed how you build your life. Take heed. It says, because the things that we do, those will be judged. They'll be judged by fire. And so... Um, Lost the verses here. Yes, says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is Jesus Christ. But it says, now if anyone builds the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire tests which sort of work each one has done. And so it's talking about those things of the world. The things of the world will be burned up. What are those things that you're doing for the Lord? What are those things you're doing to build his kingdom? What are those things you're doing? Are you, are you, do, you share, do you share Christ with others? Are you, honor, honoring, are you living a life that brings honor and glory to him? Are you serving him? How are your motives? All these things will be judged. And will be rewarded for those things that we've done for the Lord with the right motives. Now that gets scary. Have you ever tried to ask yourself and question yourself, what, are, what were actually my motives and what I'm doing? That gets pretty deep. That gets pretty deep and it's difficult and it's probing. But one day we will stand before the Lord and it will be revealed by fire. In verse 15 of, the, of 1 Corinthians 3, he says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And how sad would that be? Is that you were saved and you lived your whole life building the things that consist of the, you, uh, building your life on the things of the world. Say that. And that yes, you're saved in the end, but it says as through, so through fire. You did nothing for the Lord. A day of judgment hastens. Therefore, we are to fear the Lord. Each one of us will stand before the Lord and answer for how we've lived our life. And that is a terrifying thought. I will be judged for how I lead my family. I'll be judged for how I love my wife. I'll be judged for how I've, uh, how I am with my kids. I'll be judged for how I work. I'll be judged for my motives. Uh, that is a terrifying thought. So we have to answer for all those things and you have to answer for those things as well one day. But the great news is that we will not be judged guilty for our sin if you know Christ. Those have been paid for. So take heed how you build your life. What are you building your life on? So we looked at four reasons tonight. Four reasons that we need to fear the Lord. 
review those is that God is infinitely holy. God commands us to fear him. There are consequences for disobedience and a day of judgment hastens. Is that one day we will stand before the Lord and give an answer for our lives. Are you serving him? Are you loving him? Are you fearing him as we are commanded to do? So a few questions just to wrap this up tonight. Is do you fear the Lord? Pretty simple. Do you fear the Lord? We've talked about what it means. We've talked about what it, what it is. Do you respond to him in awe, in trust, in obedience, in worship? As those that we looked at a few minutes ago, when they had their, this encounter with God, how do, you, how do you respond to him? Do you respond to him in awe and reverence and worship and trust and obedience because of who he is? Do you recognize who he is and who you are and are you responding appropriately? Do you see him as holy, as great, as awesome and glorious? God, do you see him in that way? Do you see him as God almighty or do you see him as just a little God? A compartmentalized, yes, this is my God and uh, he's getting me, he's got me out of hell because I'm saved and but that's kind of a thing I do on Sundays or kind of a thing I just do on Wednesdays. I don't really think he can do what he promises to do. How do you see him? The question, so the question is how, excuse me, is how big is your God? Is he worthy of all glory and honor and praise? Is he worthy to be feared? And before we close in prayer, I want to read one more passage in 1 Chronicles. First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16, verses 23 through 34. To sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all, God, above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say, let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar that fills it. And let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. How do you view God? Do you view him that way? Or is your God small? Do you, do you see God as he is described and as he is proclaimed in God's word? Because if you do, 
That is what it means to fear the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is necessary for the Christian to live a life that brings honor and glory to God. It is a necessary ingredient that we fear the Lord. How do we fear the Lord? We spend time in his word. We have to spend time in his word. We have to know it. We have to think about it. We have to uh, ask questions regarding it. And, and what, God, what, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? What does this mean? And then we respond appropriately. Sometimes we can read a passage like in First Chronicles. And what's our response in that? Praise God. This is mercy endures forever. There's times when he's going to speak to us and there, there's sin in our life and he rebukes us. He, he disciplines us. How do we respond? In obedience. Uh, he, he speaks to us. He shows us more of himself. So the fear of the Lord is necessary for the Christian to live a life, live a life that brings honor and glory to God. So that's my prayer for myself. My prayer for you is that we would begin to see God for who he is and that we would fear him the way the Bible teaches. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this day. We thank you for who you are. Lord, that you, you love us. You are, uh, you, are, you are this great, amazing, awesome, holy God, a, a God that we can't fully comprehend. Our, our limited minds can't, just can't do that. Yet you care about us. And you love us. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to see you for who you are. As you, as you reveal yourself in your word, would you reveal yourself to us as we read it, as we study it? God, I pray that we begin to fear you. That we'd fear you the way the Bible teaches. That we would stand before you in awe and reverence and trust and obedience and worship. And God, that you would use us to have influence in the world. Uh, each of us in here, we're around people who don't know the Lord. God, I pray that you'd help us to have influence on those uh, because that we are holy and set apart for your purposes. So, Lord, I ask that you would just work in and through us, that we would, you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that we would fear you the way that your word teaches, and we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.